Good morning, everybody. If I've not met you yet, my name is Buck Anderson. I'm the pastor of leadership development here at Grace, and I work with our operations team as well. And we are uh, going to continue our time in 2 Timothy. I'm going to sub in for Brian this morning. And so we're going to be in the, the second chapter in verses uh, 14 through 19. We have a, an, an unusual portion of Scripture this morning when you think about 2 Timothy as a whole. This section helps us see the mood change. It's like a hinge. We've been reading some passages earlier, obviously, about um, soldiers and farmers and uh, some hardship that's come their way. But today we're going to see a church that is ravaged a bit by false teaching. There's conflict. There's division. This is a church that Paul planted some 10 years prior to the writing of this letter. He spent three years in Ephesus. He appointed the elders. He appointed Timothy as the pastor of the church. And in an amazing prophecy in his final meeting with the Ephesians, he prophesied this trouble. Toward the end of the third missionary journey, Paul was in a hurry. He wanted to get home to Jerusalem because he wanted to be there in time for Pentecost. And so he didn't have time to go to Ephesus. He was in a place called Miletus, and he says, Ephesian elders, will you come over these 20 miles and meet me in Miletus? I want to say some things to you. It ended up being his parting words to them. I doubt he ever saw them again. And in that final message to the Ephesian elders, not the church, but the elders that he had appointed, they had walked over, he gives them this message in Acts chapter 20. He says to them, be on guard for yourselves and for all the flock among which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to shepherd the church of God, which he purchased with his own blood. I know that after my departure, savage wolves will come in among you and not sparing the flock. Now check it out. And from among your own selves, men will arise speaking perverse things to draw away the disciples after them. Therefore, be on the alert. The context is important. The original audience is Paul and the elders that he had appointed some 10, 12 years prior that he had worked with diligently in the Word of God. Three-year effort with them. Notice what he says. From among your own selves, men will arise and begin to speak, to speak perverse things. The mood sobers as we enter this section of 2 Timothy. It will be dealt with by the power of the Word of God later, but let's see how this unfolds. In 1 Timothy, he noticed the same problem, and he wrote Timothy about two years prior to 2 Timothy these words. As I urged you upon my departure from Macedonia, remain on at Ephesus so that you may instruct certain men not to teach strange doctrines, nor pay attention to myths and endless genealogies, which give rise to mere speculation rather than furthering the administration of God, which is by faith. For some men straying from these things have turned aside to fruitless discussion, wanting to be teachers of the law, even though they do not understand either what they are saying or the matters about which they make confident assertions. He hinted at it in 1 Timothy. It's full bore in 2 Timothy chapter 2, verses 14 through 19. And we see as he unfolds this section, if you've got your Bibles, you, want, you may want to read along in verses 14 through 19. 
If not, I've got it on the overhead. I want you to notice the number of verses we're going to look at, six. I want you to notice the mood of most of them, and then the power of God's Word as it can overcome the, the spread of false teaching that's going on in this church. So Paul writes in his last letter in 2 Timothy chapter 2, verses 14 through 19, remind them of these things and solemnly charge them in the presence of God not to wrangle about words, which is useless and leads to the ruin of the hearers. Be diligent to present yourself approved to God as a workman who does not need to be ashamed, accurately handling the word of truth. But avoid worldly and empty chatter, for it will lead to further ungodliness, and their talk will spread like gangrene. Among them are Hymenaeus and Philetus, men who have gone astray from the truth, saying that the resurrection has already taken place, and they upset the faith of some. Nevertheless, the firm foundation of God stands, having the seal. The Lord knows those who are His, and everyone who names the name of the Lord is to abstain from wickedness. Six verses, four of them negative, two of them positive. The mood has changed in this book. The problem in a church that Paul has planted is false teaching and the division and conflict that has emerged from that. Let's make sure we see the four negatives first. Don't wrangle about words. It's useless and leads to the ruination of the hearers. Avoid worldly chatter, avoid worldly and empty chatter, for it will lead to further ungodliness. Notice their talk will spread like gangrene. And then he names two guys, Hymenaeus and Philetus. And he describes their error, he describes their theological error. These guys have gone astray, he says, from the truth. And they say that the resurrection has already taken place. And this, of course, upsets the faith. Of some. Now, what is happening in both 1 Timothy and in 2 Timothy, as well as he'll hint in other books, especially like Colossians, are two different lines of thinking, all of which are non biblical, but they were pervasive in the day. And individual teachers were, would sort of latch on to these particular teachings and, 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 follow, and have groups come around them and follow them, and as a result, it would cause division. Because it would be all that these guys would talk about. One of them was a a Greek philosophy uh, that denied a literal resurrection. Now, if you think about Paul's ethic in the New Testament, in fact, the, the whole essence of the New Testament, how we live today is based on the sure and certain return of the Lord. And our resurrection and eternality with him. So it matters how we live now in light of the future. You take away our resurrection, and all of a sudden, the ethic for living today is diminished. These guys were teaching that a resurrection was not only literal in the future, they were saying it had already come. They were the super spiritual elite. And it was how convenient for them to say that the the resurrection had already occurred, and they had obtained the fullness of their spirituality. So whatever they did sin or righteousness, it did not matter. They could blow off their sin. They could move away from the misbehavior as they have gone astray, he says. They weren't responsible for it, for they had now achieved a super spirituality. 
You'll see that today sometimes in the health and wealth movement where this, this type of spirituality that can be achieved. And there is no, there, there's no one watching. There's no one to, uh, to watch over you. There's no one to, uh, to whom you are accountable. This type of behavior was very popular then because it dismissed how you live your life today. The Jews also, those that are among the church that were Jewish, they had another approach. They had another approach to be spiritual with God around the normal means that you see in the New Testament. That's why it's called these genealogies and these legal debates. Now, if you're a Jew, a genealogy is a big deal. Think about the book of Matthew. Matthew begins his most Jewish uh, gospel with a genealogy. We might find that rather boring, but it's important to establish what family you're from in that culture. It was a tribal mindset. Who'd you belong to? You could not be the proper Messiah if you were not from the tribe of David or through Judah. That's why Matthew begins his gospel by saying, the son of David, the son of Abraham was the Lord Jesus Christ. So genealogies mattered, and instead of focusing on the things of the Word of God, they spent all their time trying to figure out their backgrounds, tried to figure out their ancestry, tried to figure out that if I'm of a proper tribe, God would be more pleased with me, and I don't have to do the normal means of sanctification as you see the rest of the Christians do. So whether it was a super spirituality achieved by no resurrection or it was a super spirituality achieved, achieved by the fact that you were of the proper lineage, it was causing rancor and division in the church. We've had those today, not necessarily in our church here, but the church for the last 2,000 years has struggled with various issues, and they're worth struggling over. They're simply not worth being dominated by. And that's what's going on in 2 Timothy. It's this constant, unending debate over one or two subjects, as if all the other subjects don't matter. Whether it be election or predestination, the extent of the atonement to Christ die for everyone or just the elect, an overplay of God's sovereignty or an overplay of free will has caused rancor and division within churches. I remember in uh, Brian Fisher and I went to seminary together. We were there from roughly from 88, 85 to 89. He was one year behind. And, and it sounds sort of funny now, but, but date setting was a big deal then. You'll see it crop up again if you haven't already. And particularly, the date setting was going to be revolved around the return of the Lord. When was Jesus going to come back? And in particular, when was the rapture? So in 1988, this guy wrote a book called 88 Reasons, the rapture will be in 1988. And it caught on like wildfire. Everybody was into it, including students at Dallas Seminary. It was a big deal. And it used the, the idea that every uh, high, high Christian day, you know, Easter, things like that, has happened on a high Jewish holy day. And so certainly the one that hasn't happened yet is the Feast of Trumpets or Rosh Hashanah in the September, October of the year. So he predicted that the rapture was going to be in September or October of 1988. So we kind of buckled up. Man, we were ready to go. <laughs> Didn't happen. Hand to God. He wrote a book in 1989 called 89 Reasons the Rapture Will Be in 1989. <laughs> and they bought it. <laughs> but it, 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 did, it got us off our game. It, it, it caused an overfocus on one thing that's interesting, but it's not everything. 
So the church issues, not theological maybe, but how about the style of music and instruments? Is it okay to have a drum set or do we have to have a cage around it? Could it be open? These are cultural issues, I realize, but it, but it, can, it can cause problems within a church. Communion, this church in its history struggled with should we serve wine or juice in communion? And rancor and division can occur from that. It's a fine debate to have. It shouldn't just be the only debate to have. You see other things that might crop up. How about pews? I led the charge when we bought Southwood to demo the pews in Southwood. And we had guys and gals that had gone to that church before, and they came over, and man, there were some tears flowing because the, choo- the, the, the pews to them was special. Now, let's, let's turn it here. What if we sat in our operations team meetings, and we thought about it, the use of our facilities, and we proposed an idea that we think the best use of the Anderson Sanctuary is to remove the pews and replace it with chairs so that we can use the room more freely. It's a good debate to have. What it can't be allowed to do is to divide us. And that's the point that's going on in Timothy, is that issues uh, rear their ugly head and take on too much. Some, Bible, some churches have split over which Bible to use. King James, New American Standard, NIV, the nearly inspired version, as the opponents of that would say. You know? and, and it would cause this rancor, this division, and, and cause us to move away from the things of the Word of God. On ending debates, they distract the hearer. They sow discord among the church. They cause divisions. And lastly, they, it's like a big old detour sign in the road. It deters us away from our time in the Word of God. Again, each one of those issues is worth debating, but not debating only and always. And so we see an example. He gives us a case study of a couple of guys who are involved in this type of division, speaking only about the fact that the resurrection has occurred. That's probably a pretty, pretty popular home group. Everybody wants to go to that one. Everybody that goes to that home group is resurrected. They're super spiritual. They don't have to struggle with their sin anymore. They don't have to confess and ask forgiveness. They've reached it. Hymenaeus and, Alexander, Hymenaeus and Philetus were a couple of those guys. Notice what he says about them. Men who have gone astray from the truth, saying that the resurrection has already taken place. Now, this Hymenaeus guy is named twice in the first and second Timothy. And, you know, it's an interesting situation to be named in the Bible. To be named in the Bible with not a good report is a problem. And Hymenaeus, unfortunately, is sort of leading the charge with that. Hymenaeus is mentioned in first Timothy. Remember I read to you earlier, 1 Timothy, the problems they were having with endless genealogies and myths? And notice what Paul says about Hymenaeus here. He says, some have suffered shipwreck in regard to their faith. Hymenaeus, and then I call this next phrase a woe verse, like, whoa, Hymenaeus, who I'm handed over to Satan so that he will be taught not to blaspheme. Hymenaeus is involved in the problem in 2 Timothy 2. He's involved in the problem in 1 Timothy. A couple observations. Notice what Paul says about his walk of faith. It suffered shipwreck. Think about that figure. Think about that metaphor. Okay? All figures describe that which is real. Okay? People that lived in Ephesus were used to seeing ships, for it was a port town. It came close 
to their city all the time. They understood commerce. They understood ships. It'd be like living by an airport here. They saw ships set sail all the time, and some of them wrecked. And it was a tragedy when the ship wrecked. There was loss. There was danger. But every ship that wrecked had been built and had been launched and was at sea. Hymenaeus's walk of faith had been launched and it was at sea. And through improper navigation, in not heeding the warding signs perhaps of a storm or of a current, his ship was wrecked. I can't prove this, but I think Hymenaeus was one of the elders that met Paul in Miletus some 12 years before. A man who had started off well and whose life of faith became shipwrecked because of his failure to embrace the regular teaching and preaching of the Word of God and rather focused on these endless and useless debates which brings about ruin for the hearer. I think that's why he's named that prophecy that Paul gave so poignantly in Acts 20, and among your own selves men will arise speaking perverse things to draw away the disciples after him. I'm going to go back to that previous verse, the the woe part of this verse. You see how serious Paul takes the handling of the Word of God? Now, as an apostle, he had the authority to do this. I think he only played the turn you over to Satan card one other time in 1 Corinthians 5, where the there was a grotesque debauchery among the Corinthian church, sexually and morality. But we see here almost running strong to the rescue of the Word of God to, prevent, to defend it, to prevent onslaught against it. Paul says such egregious behavior will be dealt with severely. And so I take this believer, Hymenaeus, an elder who's now been probably booted out of the church is going to go through spiritual discipline from God because of his grotesque behavior with the Word of God. Something that we may say, oh, that's just a little quirky, that's just a little different. Paul took a little different approach. The regular teaching and understanding of the Word of God is what he comes to the defense of, and it's a very strong language. Now we see two positive statements. We had to kind of muddle through the mud of the four negative aspects There are two positive things that will more than counter what Paul says that describes the Ephesian church in 2 Timothy. First of all, and probably the key verse of the passage, be diligent to present yourself, approved to God as a workman who does not need to be ashamed, handling accurately the word of truth. Let's break this down a bit. Let's go back to seminary for just a moment. We're going to do a mechanical layout, okay? It's six perfect stanzas each of which sort of work together, but each of which will help you, uh, help us all, I think, to understand it a little bit better. I think the key aspect of the, of the verse is this phrase, approved to God. And so what he's going to say, the only command in this, in this verse is the first two words, be diligent. It has the idea to exert great energy consistently. It has the idea uh, to um, not leave your post. Be diligent to present yourself approved to God. So what he's saying is, I want you to be diligent as you get ready to present your portfolio, like an artist, or your resume, 
to God as you seek his approval. Okay, we're going to talk about that in a moment, but as it unfolds, I think that's what's going on. Be diligent in your, in your preparation of your presentation so that God will be approved, and I've moved those over a little so you can see, approved of what? That I'm a workman who does not need to be ashamed, one who can accurately handle the Word of God. Think about preparing something, a work of art, a presentation, a speech, and you're, you prepare it so that it can be received, so that it can be approved, if you will, as it's evaluated. Now, the word approved can, can cause us some problems, so let me anticipate a couple of questions that we may have. This concept of approved by God might raise three questions, okay? First question might, might be, I thought I was already accepted by God. I've got to do this also to be accepted by God. What kind of approval is this that he's talking about? And let's ask that last question. Do I have to work? Do I have to be diligent and be a workman to be approved by God? Let's take the first one first. Okay? The idea of being accepted by, by God is, is in the form of a covenant. It's in the form of a contract. It's in the form of a deal. We are participants of the new covenant. Everyone who believes that Christ died for their sins and rose from the dead enters into an eternal agreement with God. You are safe and secure within that contract. At the end of the passage last week, I'm sure Brian brought out that last verse. It says, if we are faithless, he remains faithful, for he cannot deny himself. It's not a call to be faithless, but in arguing to the extreme, even if we are, he's sticking to the deal. You will never be in a better contract or covenant with anyone better than God Almighty. He sticks to his end of the bargain. And it is that that sure and firm foundation, actually, that allows us to participate fully with him and seek to please him within that relationship. On the human side, let's go to adoption, for example. If you, and and many of you in this room have either participated in adoption, been adopted, or certainly know those that are. I'm proud that our church focuses on adoption and making sure for foster care and things of that nature. But think about the aspects involved in adoption. Once you're sort of um, perhaps interested in adopting a child, you might go visit him or her and maybe have opportunity to have him or her come over to your home. Perhaps you might foster for a while. And those have uh, agreements and, and legal participation. But once you get to the point where you wish to adopt the child, you go to the court and a, a signature, a seal is placed on a new arrangement now in which that child has come fully and finally into your family. And he or she has all the rights and privileges of being a member of that family. And as parents, we have the full authority and responsibility to parent that child. If you have other children, the proper way they're going to tell you is you treat the adopted child as another son or daughter. And other children, you treat the adopted child now as a fellow brother or sister. A family has simply grown by the adoption of the new member. In fact, the Bible says that's what happened to us. 
We were spiritual orphans, sort of wayfarers and strangers, and God came, selected us, and brought us into his house and says, you are mine, and I will never leave you. In the human realm, however, we recognize that within a family, there are opportunities to please and displease the parents. Let's look at it from the child's perspective. The parents would like you to behave in such a way that they approve of your behavior. When you do not behave in that way, they call that, they'll say that you've been disobedient and I'm not pleased at this point with your behavior. It is a very poor parent that would say, and if you don't do what you say, I'm taking you back to the orphanage. In fact, you can't do that. You're a legal member of their family. God would never think to say, if you don't behave a certain way, I'm taking you back to the family that you used to be in when you were a wayfarer and stranger. You're in my family, but sometimes we got some family business to take care of, right? And we all know what that means to be in a family completely loved and secure within that family, but also having to go through either disobedience or seeking the approval of the one that has loved you so well. I think that's what's going on here. So to be accepted and to be approved are two different things. We're fully accepted into God's house. The kind of approval that we're going for is God's approval. And the the details of that approval is the effort the expenditure of energy that I put forth in being a good man of the book, in being a good woman of the Word of God, specifically handling accurately the Word of God. It gives our Father pleasure if we work not to be ashamed, but rather to present a carefully, accurately divided understanding of the Word of God. That gives Him pleasure. And when we do it well, he gives us a good sense of approval. This, this word approval is found throughout the New Testament. Paul uses it all the time, Greek word dokimos. It, it has the idea of pertaining to being genuine on the basis of testing. There is testing in the Christian life to show the strength of that which is strong and good and reveal that which needs to be firmed up. Elsewhere, it's translated qualify or approve. It is an evaluation. God evaluates us. We evaluate stuff all the time. Let's think about it. We do movie reviews. I give that a four star. I'm not staying at that hotel. Dirty bathroom, two stars. Restaurants use a star or a point system. A bunch of us go have lunch every Thursday and we talk about Aggie football and you can't talk about Aggie football without talking about recruits. What kind of recruit are we getting? Is he a two-star, a three-star, a four-star? I'll trade you three two-stars for four four-stars and we can go beat everybody. The idea of rating people based on their behavior, based on their performance, is routine to us. College students, you ever been in a class in in which there weren't evaluations? Reading assignments, midterms, finals. It's just part of the game, and God plays the same game. He loves to evaluate us for the purpose of moving us on to maturity. We just got through with the Olympics. Now, the, the, the people in the background don't just have good seats. They're there for a purpose. They're there to evaluate the performance of that athlete. And guess what? All nine or ten of those judges know it, and that athlete knows it. That's the deal. They understand what's going on. And they give their pleasure. 
They'll say, I, I like that performance this much. I didn't like it on that. I took off from there. I added for that. We're used to that. And at the end, we discriminate between those that did better and those that did a little worse and then those that did a little worse than that. And then there are dozens and hundreds of people that aren't even on the stage receiving a medal. Notice the heights of the various podiums. One's higher than the other. Notice the kinds of medals that they get. They're different. There's a gold based on the best. There's a silver. There's a bronze. And we do it. We chuckle. We think about it. But it's just an evaluation. And it's, it's based on how I graded or evaluated your performance. Now, if you're a gladiator, this is, this is the kind of reaction that you want. And if you work for the Air Force, or rather if you're a, in defined gold, you want it to be 99.9% pure. That's an evaluation. That evaluation was done after heating up the gold, removing any of the dross that was there, the base metals, and what was left is the dokimas, the approval. And the grade that was assigned was 99.9. If you work on Maverick's plane, you get one of these, you're looking good. You did a good job. And we're used to that. Maybe he's an Aggie. Maybe he stayed up late and watched it. How many of you stayed up late and watched that game last night? I'm happy that you're here. <laughs> uh, I did, it was about 50-50 for me, about 1.30 when I couldn't go to sleep. I'm going, holy cow. Dokimoth, used elsewhere in the Bible now, James 1. Consider it all joy, brethren, when you encounter various trials, knowing that the testing of your faith produces endurance. I think at times as Christians, we confuse grace with God's privilege and right to test us. We, we might make the mistake of saying, well, you know, I've been saved. I'm, I'm good to go. I'm really guilty of the same thing that we saw Hymenaeus teaching, that the resurrection has already occurred. There's nothing more that I need to have done to me. That'd be like parents having a baby and saying, the work is done. What, What else could there be? That's the beginning. We're born again into this life with God, and he wants us to mature. He wants to see our muscles grow. And to that end, he tests our faith. You know, in the physical realm, we do this all the time, especially this, this certain day and age, certainly this generation, man, it's, let, let's go run a 6K, let's do uh, weightlifting, let's, let's do all these different things. And everybody that goes out in these, in these various uh, workouts and, and opportunities knows that they're going to go through some pain that day. They know it. They know they're going to sweat. They know it's going to hurt, but they somehow convince themselves, and they're right, that that effort is worth it because that which will result. So God reserves the same right to test our faith. And that's why we can consider it joy, by the way, because it will produce endurance. I can run further the next time because of the test that's come my way this time. At the judgment seat of Christ in 1 Corinthians 3, let's call it the evaluation seat of Christ, it says, each man's work will become evident for the day will show it to be revealed with fire and fire itself will test the quality. All three words is our word, dokibos, It will test the quality of each man's work. How are we doing in our walk of faith is what this approval term is all about. Paul makes a very powerful statement in 1 Corinthians 9. Hang with me here. He's going to use a a racing and boxing metaphor. Do you not know that those who run in a race all run? 
So imagine the marathon's about to take place, and let's say the New York Marathon, there's about 3,000 people all sitting there, all ready to go, and he's going to say, but only one will receive the prize. Only one will receive the prize. So he says to those runners, run in such a way that you may win. Live your Christian life in such a way that you may excel in it, that you may earn, if you will, God's approval. Everyone who competes in the games exercises self-control in all things, he says. They then do it to receive a perishable wreath, we an imperishable. So you run a 6K, you get a nice little t-shirt and a little medal or whatever. He said, and that motivates us. How much more, he argues, should it be if we're handling the things that are imperishable? Therefore, I run in such a way as not without aim. Sorry for the double negative, but that's the way he wrote it. I have aim in my race. I have a purpose. It's intentional. I box in such a way as not beating the air. The purpose of of boxing is to land blows on the opponent. I discipline my body and I make it my slave so that after I have preached to others, I myself, Paul speaking, may not be disqualified. He puts a a negative term in front of our word, dokimas. I might be not approved, not qualified. Paul himself was governed by the reality that his behavior as a believer, one certainly bound for heaven, might disqualify himself based on improper behavior around the word of God. It's a big deal. As we saw, the same guy turn another over to Satan. Paul himself was trepidatious about his own behavior. That's what made him humble. It kept his eye on the ball. He moved forward. You can remember uh, 2 Timothy 2.15 from approved workmen are not ashamed. What does that stand for? Awana. Amy, how are you? That's what it stands for. Approved workmen are not ashamed. And the idea that we have at this church every Sunday night during the fall and spring semester for our children to come and learn the Word of God, to memorize it. All three of my girl, our girls went through it. And at the end of it, if you memorize a certain number of verses, you get an award, the Timothy Award. Okay, And if you don't memorize the verses, you don't get the Timothy Award. And there's no one there picketing the Awana Award system at the end saying, unfair to those that didn't memorize. We recognize it's an evaluation. And we, we honor the diligence, the work that went in to memorizing those literally hundreds of verses over a few years and receive a prestigious award. Be diligent to present yourself a proof to God doing these three things. A workman. Ergon in Greek, we get our word energy from this word. Work up a little sweat. Get in it. Get in it in such a way that at the end you won't feel ashamed. That you kind of took some shortcuts. Go all in, as they might say today, in your work around the Word of God. So that you won't be ashamed. One who can accurately handle the Word of God. The two words accurately handle is... A Greek word, orthotomio, ortho like an orthodox, it means correct or, or right. And to me, it means to cut. Most likely, it's a reference to Paul's work, a leather goodsman, probably larger than that, an upholster, one who understood fabric, understood how to make proper cuts, 
Uh, if you're a carpenter, you'll understand this. Uh, the proper way to make a miter cut is to make it at the correct angle or it gets all sloppy. That's where precision kind of effort takes place. In things that we admire that are beautiful were done precisely. They were cut straight. And he's saying you can do that with the Word of God. First of all, if, if he's going to evaluate us to work, I assume that he's allowed us to do that. It, 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 secondly, if he says, do not be ashamed, I assume that it's possible that we might be ashamed if we don't do well. And thirdly, I assume that we can accurately cut the Word of God straight if Paul is going to encourage us to do so. It can be done. It's not a book just for seminarians. It's not a book just for uh, the, the smart guys and gals. It was written for the everyday John and Jane so that we can understand the very mind of God, and it is possible to understand him. Or ultimately, God would have failed in his desire to communicate himself to us. The Bible at its root level is a book about God. God is the very first subject of the very first verse of the Bible, and he is the subject of the Bible. It contains information about going to heaven, but that's not what the Bible is about. It's about God, and thus our arranging ourselves around him and the way he thinks and what he thinks about stuff. And he's saying, you can understand me if you work in an unashamed way. You can accurately handle the Word of God. There are three things I want to close with as far as how to go about this handling accurately the Word of God. In your Bible study, I want you to be intentional. I'll show you a couple of verses about that in a moment. We're going to be, I want you to see that it is attempting to influence you and so that you might influence others. And lastly, at times, I'm going to encourage you to be intense about your time in the Word of God, to get after it a little, to go around the, the normal five or ten minutes of study and perhaps think differently about how you approach the Word of God. I love this aspect of intentionality, especially from the Old Testament. I majored in Hebrew and at Dallas Seminary, and, I, and I, I love the, the, the beauty of the language, first of all, but I loved how it improved my understanding of the New Testament. All the New Testament writers cut their teeth in the Old Testament, and I saw those themes and parallels ever more clearly. And I early in my ministry set this verse as something that would control me, Ezra 7.10. Ezra set his heart to study the law of the Lord and to practice it. The New Testament parallel is the one we're studying today. Be diligent to present yourself for proof to God. A workman does not need to be ashamed one who can accurately handle the word of truth. The word of God is also intended to be influential. It's intended to change you. It is intended to make you different. The idea is first at best captured maybe in Paul's letter to the Romans. In the therefore section of the book in chapter 12, after he's given 11 chapters of, uh, of doctrine, he'll start this section off with therefore, and the main imperative will be do not be conformed to this world, a negative command, but rather let me replace that with be transformed by the renewing of your mind. One of my favorite movies and books was a movie called The Paper Chase. It was the story of a crotchety old he, uh, uh, professor at Harvard contract law, tough guy, man, you better know your stuff. And the best of the best would come into his class. Guys had, gals had graduated top of their class all over the, all over the world, literally, made their way to Cambridge 
sitting in his, in his class, and some guy would pop off acting like he knew something. And he says, let me remind you, son, you come in here with a skull full of mush. When it comes to the law, their minds were mush. Their minds were sharp and strong, but they didn't know the law. They were there as students to learn it. We come into the Christian life as newborn babes with a skull full of mush theologically. God's not just Bennett's book of virtues. He's not just a good old Scottish common sense. He thinks differently. And we need to spend time with him to see how he thinks and thus renew, make our minds new again and to send or place our mush with his ways of thinking. All Scripture is inspired by God, profitable for teaching and reproof for correction, training in righteousness, that the man of God may be fully adequate, equipped for every good work. The word equipped there has the idea of outrigging a ship. In that day and age, you go out for a, a long voyage. You might be at sea for three months, six months. Two weeks in is not a good time to realize, you didn't bring the water? I thought we had to have water. You've got to fully outrig yourself. Understanding the whole mind of God from Genesis to Revelation prepares us for the events that will come in life. This is my favorite one. This is Paul at a Bible study unlike I've ever been. And I can tell you I've been in a lot of intense Bible studies. I've had some of the most powerful worship times in my life, not only in rooms like this, but in classrooms, in private study, and in conferences. It's just how God has wired me to focus deeply on a subject for a while, to be intense about it, makes a difference to me. It penetrates me. Notice here, Paul at a Bible study, unlike anyone I've ever been, on the first day of the week when they were, we were gathered together, Luke speaking uh, or writing this to break bread, Paul began talking to them, intending to leave the next day, and he prolonged his message until midnight where there were many lamps in the upper room where we were gathered together. And there was a young man named Eutychus sitting in the windowsill, sinking into a deep sleep as Paul kept on talking. So Paul apparently is about to put this guy to sleep. And Eutychus was overcome by sleep, and he fell down from the third floor and was picked up dead. Paul went down, fell upon him, and after embracing him, he said, Do not be troubled, for the life is in him. When he had gone back up, he had broken the bread and eaten. He talked with them a while until daybreak and then left and took away the boy alive. And as you might imagine, and they were greatly comforted that the kid was alive and the Bible study was over, you know. But, but, but think about that. Don't think about Paul. Pa- Paul's so driven, an all-night Bible study is unique to him. How about the people that were there? Even Eutychus, man, he hung in there until he fell asleep. He forgot that he was on a third floor windowsill. God took care of that. But the intense study of the Word of God marked those individuals. That was in Acts chapter 20, one section before Paul goes and talks to the Ephesian elders that we open our message with today. Beautiful section of Scripture. At times, the Word of God can be intense. Paul was impacted by that personally. When God was pleased to reveal His Son in me, I did not preach Him among the Gentiles. I did not immediately go up or consult flesh and blood, nor did I go up to Jerusalem to those who were the apostles before me, but I went away to Arabia. Paul was a Pharisee of Pharisees. 
He had misunderstood the Old Testament as a, as a way to approach God by doing good things. A Boy Scout kind of mindset. More merit badges merited me more favor with God. He had not allowed grace to be a part of his understanding of God. And he went away and sort of refragged his theological hard drive. He had to push reset. And he went away by himself to study deeply the things of God. And I encourage you to do that at a personal level. Whether that's an afternoon or a weekend or for heaven's sakes, a a, a five-day vacation that I was going to take doing this, maybe don't do that and study deeply the things of the Word of God. It will bring you wonderful results by the amount of time that you spend, and in fact, it will be exponential in that study. He tells the author of Hebrews as he speaks to everyone, these passages are not just for the seminary guys and gals, the preachers and teachers, it's for all the individuals in the church of God. He says, you guys ought to be teachers by now. He's saying, let's be more intense about our understanding of God's Word. Let's press on. Like newborn infants, let's crave the pure spiritual milk so that we may grow up in it into salvation. He ends with this powerful word of affirmation. Nevertheless, despite all those four negative verses that we talked about, Hymenaeus and Philetus, their speech, spreading like gangrene. He says, nevertheless, the firm foundation of God stands. It has the seals. I know who are mine. And if you are mine, abstain from wickedness. I think he gives us a simple reminder that despite the onslaught of false teaching that occurred in every one of the churches that Paul planted, and those are the reasons for every one of Paul's letters were letters of correction and encouragement because of problems that were going on in those churches, He says, nonetheless, the church of Jesus Christ will stand, and it will not be thwarted by any invader, including those who focus on useless words. And those are the two paths that this passage gives us. It can be broken down really simply. Not to be seduced into um, these kind of uh, conversations that ultimately focus only on one subject and will later cause division. Rather, spend that time better by focusing on the word of truth. Let me get you going. If, if I've kind of got you fired up a little, wherever you are, here's some things that have helped me in my life. Bible in 90 Days, you can buy it on Amazon for 10 bucks. It's a great way to kick your start into going through the word of God, laying out the word of God, because I am going to look at every one of you in the eye this morning and say, let's be men and women of the book who know the whole book. Genesis to Revelation. Max Anders' book, 30 Days to Understanding the Bible. We give to all our fellows. All 34 of them this year have studied this book. It's what they study in the summer before they come and go through the classes. Two-hour classes in the morning, two-hour classes in the afternoon. It's intensive. I love this Dallas Seminary book, Living by the Book, by uh, um, uh, Howard Hendricks, who wrote that book when we were there. He's passed on now, but it outlives him. If you've not joined a grace group that's focused on the Word of God, do so. A home group, midweek Bible studies, going through James's semester. It's not at all too late to join us. There are electives that are not too late to join. Sunday morning groups, whether it be Sunday schools or electives that will be going on later in the semester, participate with us. If you're at that next level and you want to go to uh, take some classes, Dallas Seminary offers free classes online. You can study Genesis or John right now. 
You can go through their certificate program for credit. Dallas Seminary is coming to Grace Bible Church in April of 2017. And you can join us. You can take a class. You can audit the class if you don't want to take it for credit. But if you want to sit in an intense four-day class and see what that's like, come join us. Check them out at dts.edu. Grace 360 next January. Let's go ahead and save the date. We'll have opportunities for biblical, theological instruction as well as personal enrichment. The beauty of, of our time in the Word of God is just what Paul says to Timothy. Let's show ourselves approved to God as workmen. Need not be ashamed, thus it could rightly divide the word of truth. Father, thank you for the privilege we've had this morning. For each one here, for the encouragement from on high to us, pray that you'll give us opportunity outside this place to enact these truths. We pray now in Jesus' name. Amen. See you guys next week. Thank you.